Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is the word of God for the people of God. If we are to understand the passage we just read, we need to remember what came just before this passage. What has Matthew just told us? In the first verse we read today, it says, Now when Jesus heard this, what did he hear? What had just happened that he heard that sent him to a deserted place? Well, Matthew tells us that Herod, the king of the territory, had arrested Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. He had been holding him in custody for a while, but the story just previous to where we read tells of a time when Herod was having a birthday party and on a whim beheads John the Baptist, puts his head on a platter and presents it to the guest at the party. It is ghastly. It is grotesque to read about. But it must have been so much worse for Jesus, for his cousin, the one who had baptized him. I don't think it's a stretch to say his friend and his co-worker has just been put to death. And Herod is in charge politically of the territory and so Jesus must have thought, what does this mean for me and for my disciples? He must have wondered about their welfare, maybe even their lives. And so Matthew says, when he heard this, he left and went to a deserted place. So when we begin to read today, Jesus is grieving and surely reflecting deeply on his call and on his mission and what God wants him to do next. And Matthew says he pushes out on the lake to go to a deserted place. But when the crowds hear this, they follow him. Crowds of people come to be with Jesus. The fact that they follow sets up the miracle we read about in the subsequent verses first realize that this miracle never happens if the crowds are not present, if they do not follow. If no one has come to be with Jesus, what we read about the manifestation of God's power and presence would have never happened in this way. Secondly, it could not happen if Jesus did not have compassion for them. 
as Matthew puts it. It says that Jesus came ashore, saw the crowds, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. That's in verse 14. We don't really have a timeline for any of this until the next verse. We don't know if he's been there all day, all afternoon, an hour or two. But in verse 15, Matthew goes on to say, When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. The disciples are ready to move along, to have the day finished. But Jesus basically says, no, they need not go away. We're going to stay here. We're going to invite them to stay here. The miracle only happens because on the one hand, the crowds have come and they are present. On the other hand, Jesus decides to stay present with the crowds that have come. I want us to think about this important role of presence. We spent all of July talking about prayer and how we could open ourselves more to the presence of God, how we could practice more effectively opening ourselves and making our lives a practice of prayer. As United Methodists, when we joined the church, the pastor asked someone who's coming to join, will you participate here fully? And then they asked five things, through your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. All during July, we talked about prayer practices All this month, we're going to talk about those other vows. This month, we will delve further into the other four vows, starting this morning with presence, the critical role of presence. This text is perfect for that discussion because we realize that without presence, without the people coming together, we would never have this story of this revelation of God through Christ caring for those who come, having compassion on the people who are in need. If the crowds don't come, if the people don't follow, if Jesus doesn't stay with them, there's no revelation of God's presence and power as we read about it. But the crowds do come, and despite what the disciples suggest, Jesus does stay He says, here's what we'll do. You give them something to eat. The disciples say, send them the way. He says, no, you give them something to eat. Remember what they said there in verse 17? They replied, we have nothing here. Well, but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them here. He takes them. Matthew tells us, blesses them as he looks up to heaven, breaks them, gives them back to the disciples and says, distribute these. The disciples have food. They say they have nothing, but they have something. They're just planning to keep it for themselves. Jesus comes up with a different plan. He says, we're going to share this. Matthew says, 5,000 people ate, plus women and children. How did that happen? Matthew doesn't tell us. He just says, this is what happened. And then they gathered up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And I think there's the clue right there. Where did the 12 baskets come from? 
Do you think people were just carrying around empty baskets? They said, we're going to go for a walk. Maybe we'll need a basket. Or is it more likely that they were going to the lake where Jesus was, and just like any of us would do, going to the lake for all day, we would pack some provisions. We would take some food and water. Today, a variety of other things, probably in the picnic basket as well. But we would take some things with us. But we're all taking care of ourselves when we do that. That's what the disciples were doing as well, I think. They knew they had fish and bread. They just weren't planning to share it. It's like, let's get the rest of the people out of here, and then we can eat. Let's finish this up so we can go and have, have dinner. They say, we have nothing to share. Well, we have a little bit. So Jesus says, rather than your plan, let's try this. Let's first acknowledge that what we have comes from God. And then let's give thanks to God that God has given us something, and then let's share what we have. Jesus changes the plan of the disciples. That is what happens when we encounter Jesus. The plan changes. We set out on our course in life taking care of ourselves and our lives, and then we encounter Jesus, and it changes us, and it changes the plan. And it happened to the disciples in this very passage. They had one idea about what was to happen, and they changed because Jesus instructed them to do so. Jesus gives then the disciples give, then the people give, and in that sequence, a miracle always happens. Whenever we understand what Jesus is really all about and the call upon our lives, and we understand that all that we have is a gift of God and that we're called to share it, and we begin to do so, miracles happen. Because we move from self-interest as our primary focus to God's interest. We move from thinking only about ourselves and our interest to thinking about what is God interested in? How about God's other children? We move from thinking just about the physical aspects of our lives to realizing there's something bigger and greater and that this spiritual aspect that we discover encompasses the physical as well. It changes us when we encounter Jesus from a mindset that says, I'll take care of myself, that God is just working with me to understanding that primarily God wants to work in me and through me for the sake of others. Jesus models this life of self-giving that God calls all of us to. It's not that Jesus says, oh, you don't have physical needs, don't worry about eating. But Jesus changes the dynamic when he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. When he models that, it changes everything. Anytime we celebrate Holy Communion, we use those four verbs. If you have your bulletin there, just flip it over to the third panel. There's some musical notes at the top, and then it says prayer of consecration. You'll hear these four verbs. We rehearse them every time as a central part of what God was doing in Jesus. If you just move down to the third paragraph in that section under the prayer of consecration, we're talking to God, 
This is what we say. On the night in which he, Jesus, gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves. We offer ourselves, we say. We offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Jesus changes the dynamics that day when the crowds came, but it's also a call to each and every one of us to consider how we are living our lives. Are we living our lives giving to others? That's what he's talking about. Self-giving is what the kingdom of God looks like. Self-giving is what the body of Christ is to look like. Giving of yourself is what your life is supposed to look like if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's about you and a relationship with God, but not only that. It's more than that. It's bigger than that. It's giving of yourself for the sake of others in the name of Christ. Dr. Rodney Stark is a sociologist of religion. I really enjoy his reading. I've mentioned some of his things to you before. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity. In it, he talks about the question he's really concerned about when he's writing this, which is how did this little tiny religion started in the backwater, if you will, of the Roman Empire, within 300 years became the dominant force in the empire. And he looks at a, a whole variety of things that happen, but he looks particularly at this belief of how Christians are to give themselves to others and what difference that makes. He has several examples. One of the real striking ones to me is he looked at a couple of plagues that hit the Roman Empire. One in the year 165, then about 100 years later in the year 250, lasting all the way into the 260s, these plagues swept across the Roman Empire, killing as much, he says, as 30% of the population, wiping out entire villages in some situations. And he says, though, something happens because the Christians understood that they were to give to others that made all the difference. I want to read you a couple of pieces of this where he contrasts the pagan response and the Christian response and shows the difference. This is from somebody writing at that time in history. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way of the Christians. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated unburied corpses at dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. 
Then he quotes from the Bishop of Alexandria of that time, writing about how the Christian community was responding. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Stark goes on to show, statistically, because of the death rate was so dramatically different for the Christians compared to the pagans, how it made a significant difference in the spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire. Simply because Christians were willing to be present even in a terrible circumstance. That their willingness to be there to feed somebody who maybe was too weak to eat, to give somebody a drink of water, saved so many lives that it really changed the trajectory of the growth of Christianity and the proportion of the population that profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. A ministry of presence was a key to life. Our commitment to being present is a vow for life as well. It's a lifelong vow we make to Christ, to God, to one another, but it's a vow that brings life, for Christian life happens when we come together. The body of Christ is about members being one another, with one another. 